Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Are horses actually just full of strings? Will we ever see a knight of Callow? And will Cat ever get used to raising things from the dead? Yes. A single strike parts a champion from a corpse. Crazy proverb. So, I was under the impression that this was just a fantasy work, but I do have to point out that the epigraph this week, A Single Stripe Parts a Champion from a Corpse, is a really strong affirmation, a really powerful approbation of a general strike. The greatest way to defeat the wicked champions of the age would be a single strike. I don't know that it's if it's ominous or auspicious that the strike is separating a champion from a corpse, but you're not wrong. Well, as the first line of this chapter reads, dawn will come much, much too early. That's not all that happens in this chapter. If you would give us a brief overview. Oh, yes. I would be happy to. So, in this chapter, we begin with Pat traveling. We are headed towards... We are headed towards Summer Home, and we get a general overview of a very recent history of a couple of the legions we get so we get an introduction into what they are up to what they are about and we get cat's first not swordsmanship lesson but uh cat's first lesson in fighting and we get a brief demonstration of name power at the end for the most part this chapter is Cat's introduction to fighting, both in the general sense and Cat's introduction to fighting as a named individual. It's a pretty tight chapter. It's pretty focused on warfare and fighting in general, um, and it doesn't doesn't stray too far past those topics. But it does begin with something that I think is worth noting, even if it is not exactly what we're looking for. But Cat does say very early on she drops a whatever the hells which feels adjacent to what we're keeping an eye out for it's an infernal oath though it may not be an oath of infernal dedication our little girls growing up she isn't quite swearing by the hells or gods below but she is invoking them so we're we're on the right track 
I'm very grateful that our first note on this story itself recognizes the momentousness of this occasion. I would say enormity, but in a story like the in a story like this, there are many more enormities than mere language. Speaking of enormities, there's there's a, a discussion on a couple of the uh, the legions, this, specifically the legions that Cat's going to be meeting soon, and there's quite a few interesting tidbits about their history, how they fight, that sort of thing. Um, that I'm sure we'll be talking about quite a bit here, but I have to say one of the early one of the early comments that Captain <laughs> offers is that uh, quote it used to be that the Empire didn't fight Kaluan armies on an open field unless we had them four to one end quote that sort of ratio that enormous lopsided that enormous expectation for how lopsided a battle needs to be is absurd in a, a way that demonstrates exactly how capable uh the Kaluan knights were and exactly how incapable the Precy legions were prior to uh, uh black's reforms just for some fun context as far as I'm aware, conventional wisdom of an equivalent era here, obviously without magic or that sort of thing, but you know, early medieval kind of thing, the conventional wisdom would be to assault a fortified stronghold. You would want to outnumber the defenders three to one. Captain here is saying that the Kaluans were so far above and beyond what the Precy were capable of fielding that it was worse than assaulting a fortress to face them in an open field. That's horrifying. How the Kaluans, how the Precy survived, frankly, is astounding with that, if that's the case. And they still lost half the time. <laughs> yeah. And this also goes to show, I think, how carefully they have managed to exterminate some types of knowledge from Kaluan identity. In the very first chapter of the book, you may recall that Kat talks about her opponent's punch hitting like a horse's kick. There's still an awareness of equestrian identity in Callowan's speech patterns. But what's Catherine's reaction to this? She hears that the Ironsides faced down a charge by Callowan knights and says, that's uh, good on them, I guess. You're saying it like that's a really impressive thing. Catherine, a half generation removed from this unspeakable, I wanted to call it a legion, but that's the wrong one. From this unspeakably powerful order, these unspeakably powerful orders of knights has no idea what that really means. All she knows is the legions are supreme. It makes sense that she wouldn't be familiar with the gritty details. She's educated in Kalo by the side that lost for a long time and then suddenly won and is a you know a teenager. It's I doubt there's they're discussing the ins and outs of tactics. That's what the war college is for. But yes, the the power of the knights in Kaloan common knowledge seems to, yeah, like you said, not exactly be up to historical standards. And it very well could be that had Kat been living in a family where her parents had been alive before the conquest, she would know. But as an orphan, she, her exposure to history is what the empire tells her. And you don't tend to talk up your enemies. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't tend to be the way propaganda works. So it makes sense that in Kat's mind, the knights were very capable, you know, effective fighters, but this, this to this level, yeah, 
her lack of knowledge does make perfect sense given her upbringing. But for there to be no whispers at the rat's nest, what force could enable that? Maybe the most effective conqueror in living memory or even beyond. Not unreasonable. (laughs) Now, three to one to take conventional fortifications. What is it for flying fortifications? So obviously the Precy legions, even just with their name, are pretty well modeled after one of the more famous legions in Western history, uh, the Roman legions. And that what? <laughs> and that, that goes down, in fact, to some pretty uh, specific details. Um, Kat and Captain talk a little bit about the cognomens, which are nicknames, more or less, given to the specific legions. The legions are all numbered, but they earn cognomens based on what they do typically in battle. The Roman legions also had this to an extent. Most of their cognomens were related to where they were raised or where they were stationed, perhaps. Um, but they did earn some specific names. Like there were some that were just called victory or named after the emperor that raised them, that sort of thing. But I was about to use the word coincidentally, but intentionally on EE's part, certainly. Um, the Roman legion, the sixth legion for a while, um, was actually called ironclad. So you have the iron sides, which is the sixth legion of Prace, and the Roman sixth legion was the ironclad. And that was uh, one of the more famous legions for a while. It served under Caesar and was one of his, you know, central veteran legions, what have you. Uh, so that's that's just a fun little tie-in um, to that, that specific cognomen. And then the other cognomen that's mentioned here is just the regicides, which doesn't necessarily have a historical analog directly, but it is pretty metal. And the the throat paint that's described to go along with that, they really are a terrifying legion without knowing anything about them aside from those two facts. I appreciate what you're trying to say, but again, iron sides is the metal one. Oh, sorry, of course. My bad. While Kat is discovering the forgotten glories of her people's histories, she mentions that the Empire tried to invade a few times before the conquest, before Black and the Empress got put in charge. And my only comment here is to really note some of the language used. The Empire tried to invade a few times before, and Black and the Empress got put in charge. At this point, she seems to have a very weak grasp of the eternal conflict between the two kingdoms and the uh, system of precy governmental continuity. I don't know that I... I don't know off the top of my head how long ago Prace became Prace and no longer the remnants of the Meetsons. But the way things go, it feels as though nearly every emperor or empress invades Callow at least once. So a few times definitely seems like a bit of an understatement. <laughs> yes. I don't think Black or Empress or the Empress getting put in charge. There aren't many times where Amadeus or Elia are receiving a verb like that. <laughs> they tend to be pretty active. I can say that currently listed on the wiki are 56 dread empresses and emperors. And do you know the dating system in here? We've got things listed as AD. Uh, uh, how? No, I don't. 
Uh, and I don't recall how the calendar system is meant to function, but Dread Emperor Nefarious, directly before our current beautiful Dread Empress, reigned from 1265 to 1285 AD. So that suggests about 1300 years of praise being more or less praise. Enough time for a few invasions, that is to say. Uh, just a note, based on this, the 0 AD on the wiki here, comes along with Maleficent the first, who is noted to have founded the Dread Empire. So it could just be, I think Zero is just the founding of the Empire. Also known as Amina, was a Tagreb warlord, governor of Catan, under Mitsin occupation, the first Dread Empress. She's widely regarded as one of the most accomplished tyrants, but not the most. Oh, AD stands for after declaration. There we go. Following the discussion of the legions or alongside this, we find out a little bit of a little bit about the generals of these two legions of the third and the sixth and find out that the sixth is led by Istrid, who is an orc, as is most of her legion. And the third is led by Sacker. So that is a goblin and an orc leading the two legions stationed in Kalos capital. One of those legions is majority orc as well. I have to say choosing to occupy Kalo, which is one of the two king like one of the two major polities that's most unified racially with garrisoning it with the the foreign race that is i mean frankly monstrous to Callens. there's there've been discussions from cat about what she knows about orcs and it's all they're mostly muscle they eat people they have two rows of teeth and goblins are in a similar kind of exotic and fearful realm for the Kaluans, and that's who the garrison is you i i understand invoking fear as a pacification technique to an extent but that only works to some level it seems as though it would be more long-term more viable for well that's not true in the short term more viable to have humans mostly to keep the Kaluans more comfortable with what's going on to keep things relatable so it's curious to me that's going on i i wonder if it's just the reputation of withstanding the knights that kept uh, the uh the sixth there and that's good enough? I, I don't know. So if Cat is a representative sample, which I'm, I'm sure Cat is basically just the basic Kaluan, uh, which here I'm using as a joke, though I have previously said I truly believe her to be the soul of Kalo, two things can be true. But if we are to take her as a representative sample, Kaluans apparently have a very high tolerance in general for that which is different. She hears about the knights being such a terror and immediately engages in some of the most invalid both sidesism I've heard since the last presidential election cycle. We're raised on stories of praisey monsters, but I wonder what kind of stories they heard while growing up. N no, they have dread emperors. The orcs eat people. The goblins are goblins. The fact that your knights are scary doesn't equate. You are a good kingdom. They are an evil kingdom. We learn it's more nuanced than that, but as a state, praise is much more monstrous. And not just like there are monsters, but they are the tapirs. Come on. Praise is invading Kalo, as we talked about at length before, because their former practice of just killing a bunch of people to make sure that farms work is no longer as effective as it could be. I think the Praise know where they stand, yeah. 
But when they go to murder people, the knights were mean. And you can see some spinning of Callow invades because there have been crusades, sure. But but up until a couple of years from this point, Callow has never produced its own triumphant. Nowhere has produced its own triumphant except Price, though. You know, up north, depending how you weigh things. I suppose that argument could be made. She wasn't the only unspeakable abomination. Fair enough. Oh, and also, you know, if we're talking about unspeakable abomination, something, something, I hate the pilgrim. So, monsters aside, what about those villains who are first victims rather than victors? Uh, There's a line here where Captain delves into the very backstory we were wondering aloud about back in, I don't know, chapter three party. Uh, She says, I was born into my name back when I was cursed, she grunted. By the time I became the captain, no one was dumb enough to challenge me for it. So Captain's curse was a name into which she was born. And I suspect the origin of her largeness. And then she rose from there to captaincy without losing the fundamental nature of the curse, though surely transitioning aspect-wise. That's my read. Yes, I I think... So, captain is clearly cursed. Lowercase c, cursed. Whatever that exactly means, we know what it means. Whatever that exactly means, it's something that is true about her, and thus she qualifies for the name cursed. Losing the name does not lose the inherent trait of having been cursed. So speaking of Captain, we're talking about her being born cursed. It strikes me that cursed, if that is the entire name, which I think it is, since she gives it the cursed, it's one of the more simple and frankly generic names we see. There's no descriptor, there's no condition, there's no mitigating factor. She's just the cursed. It Most names give you at least an idea about what they are or do, and this is just a very vague and broad description of one of her traits. I know that names do that. They pick a trait or three traits, I suppose, and highlight those above anything else to absurd proportions. But I don't know. Cursed stands absurd out to proportions. me. Cursed just stands out to me among names. I don't know if you felt that way. I didn't, but now I'm tempted to, which does fit the relatively unique manifestation of it. I think we see relatively few things that are, if I may, apparently assigned. Few are born named, some achieve namedness, and some have namedness thrust into their chest by a sword held by their mentor and future father, as they say. Right. You know, normal things. She goes to just transition to captain. I don't think that's a direct transition, like, say, squire to black knight or a apprentice to hierophant or what have you. Absolutely not. So it, it is interesting to see that transition. I think this little paragraph, this two-sentence paragraph here, is interesting because first exposure to a name that explicitly doesn't have a fight for claiming the name, Cat's squireship, Black's squireship, there's conflict, there are other claimants. And Black makes it sound like the choosing to become a claimant is what makes you one, as long as you have the the story to back up that claim. Even the book of all things at the very beginning, what's the last line of that initial epigraph? It is, we are told, the only choice that ever really matters. And 
captain's power was such that, and potentially her fame was such that when she was vying for captaincy, hmm, I don't know if you can do that to a name. You absolutely cannot. <laughs> when she was vying for the title, the role of captain, she just got it because nobody else was willing to be a claimant against her, which I respect that decision on anybody's part who may have had the chance. Speaking of respecting choices on the part of those who have a chance, we see here again something that I had forgotten about and then took to be just a little instance of flexing on his part. Something that turns out to be an entire pillar of character in Black's wicked playfulness. If I may quote from the story, I tamped down the urge to jump out of my skin. Black's idea of a sense of humor apparently involved sneaking behind me at every occasion. How the man managed that in a full suit of armor was beyond me. She always focuses on the armor. But Black just likes sneaking up on people. He's a Black Knight, but decided, no, he's going to be a sneak boy too. I appreciate that from him. Play your little games. I mean, he is a dramatic person. We get not too many paragraphs down the line here. He gives some dramatic speech about swordsmanship or what have you and cat calls him out on it and he's upset by that cat being or black being sneaky does kind of make sense he's a schemer more than a fighter his name magic his name power manifests itself in shadows not i don't know any any kind of his name power manifests itself in shadows he's an understated guy he's small of stature he wears boring armor he doesn't bluster he's just He's not the kind of person who needs to be front and center to accomplish his goals. So being sneaky and startling his apprentice, sure. And yes, Kat spends a lot of time worrying about Black's armor. I'm a little concerned about her. I, I wonder, do the legionaries in the that are stationed in Callow just wear two suits of armor and bells or... She's constantly... I, I understand all the bells are broken these days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> My bad. Oh, man. it's The number of times Cat focuses on armor is starting to become absurd, and I look forward to following that as we move forward. I share a line from the story that is disconnected from our conversation, disconnected from the rest of the chapter, and surely disconnected from anything for the rest of the entire series. So let's not worry about it. Please do. When Black sneaks up on Cat, he tells her that, well, he says, you'll get used to it. And after her moment of terror and uh, armor obsession, Cat replies, to raising things from the dead? Gods, I hope not. That strikes me as a bad habit to form. That's my entire point. That is a good one. I... I think that, uh, I can't imagine it will come up again. I I think Cass learned her lesson, you're right. Did you notice anything about the dwarves this time? It, are you referring to Black's less than positive review of the equipment that they make? Or the, the equipment that they sell, rather? Yes, and on which the uh, final crusade of the series depends. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know, I, I, I know that we were definitely aware that goblin steel is the best of the best. Like there's that's hammered in, you know, like a blacksmith does time and time again throughout the story. But I guess I was under the impression that dwarven materials were also excellent, but that very well could just be bleed from, I don't know, every other fantasy story I've ever read. And 
that's actually a question I have, which I'm not sure is particularly addressed. We're aware that the Kingdom Under is possibly the most powerful faction in Kalernia. Uh, and I say possibly only because what do I what do we do with like Nessie or and the, the Titans? The Titans and the factional nature of the dwarves. How powerful are they really? Are they exactly. unified enough to be powerful? But Black complains that they sell their cheap mass-produced stuff. And yeah, it's, it's not great. But on the other hand, that doesn't tell us what Dwarven craftsmanship is like. Goblin Steel is the best around, yeah. But Dwarven stuff simply isn't around. And the Dwarves are probably so far beyond everyone else. What is actual, you know, Dwarf-forged masterwork? What, what would happen if you went down to a Dwarf fortress other than an interminable and opaquely complex gameplay. It uh, it really is hard to say. Um, I Again, because of expectations from other sources, I don't recall what my impression is of Cat meeting dwarves later on. I, does she describe their equipment? Does she mention anything about it? I, I'm, I'm curious about that, and I'll need to make a note to, to double-check that when we reach that point. And you know, to remember what's being said here. It very well could be that the dwarves have very good stuff, but not quite goblin material, or maybe they do have the best stuff and just keep it all behind. That's that's very interesting. I didn't even really think past the, the surface level on that when I was reading this. So just as... as uh, Okay, here we go. So when Black sneaks up on Cat, he tells her that she'll get used to knowing things she doesn't know how she knows. He says, names provide what you would call a second set of instincts. Part of growing into yours is learning which parts to use and which parts to ignore, end quote. Black has before talked about something that Kat will spend a lot of time thinking about later on, and that's being very powerful, but also opening you up to a major vulnerability in getting caught into the ruts that your role wants to roll down. And it's interesting how he's talking about that here. There are This isn't presented as your name is going to guide you down a certain story and you need to move away from that, or your role wants certain outcomes and some of those will benefit you depending on which story you're in. He's saying that there are instincts that are actively worth ignoring here. And I don't know. It's this is an odd sentiment for me because the mantle of a name is an external force for the people, the individuals who get them, yes, but they really are supposed to be characters in a story within the practical guide story. You you follow. And with that, this internal fight that Black is talking about, ignoring instincts that are given to you. It really feels like the role and the person are separate more so than is made obvious in much of the story. Characters are often, probably more often than not, aside from close personal friends, referred to by their name rather than their name. They are, we know of the Mirror Knight, we know of the Saint of Swords. They are these characters first and foremost, and Black is saying that part of that is worth ignoring. I don't know. It, it's a weird, it's a weird maybe dichotomy for me of leaning into your name and you know, you get more power by doing the name, but that the vulnerability is there. And Black's just ironclad, this is how you need to do it to survive. There's a level of 
curse, I suppose, attached to these names then that feels weird to me. It's the thing that I keep thinking of, and I know that uh, we've made it several episodes without referencing this. Worm alert. Spoilers for all of Worm ahead. It's very much that kind of thing. The passenger, the external force that's giving you these incredible powers, but you have to fight against its influence on you, or you'll find yourself in a position that is meant to test and or destroy you for the purpose of beings far outside your ken. Well, it was a good run. (laughs) I had never really considered that, even though we have a handful of scenes where the name is Acts. Where the name is perceived by its bearer as something external. And we have one forgettable scene, of course, where there is a an externality to the name uh, in a really glorious moment that I look forward to covering in the 2030s. Of course. The separation between name and named has often been an academic distinction at best to me. And it's really early on that Black that the story that ee reminds us that no i am in fact a fool and should just be better and i appreciate that i think that is i think that's what you i think it makes sense that you got that out of the story i really feel like ee is saying that directly to you in this paragraph well you don't have to be mean about it (laughs) so i have a number of smaller points if i can rapid fire them please do Uh, As we go through, we find uh, one of those beautiful moments of storytelling through architecture and beautiful moments of the fascinating dichotomy of occupation by a greater, but also in some ways helpful outside force. Uh, Catherine notes, the main road was good paved stone at least. It had been built by the Precy after the conquest, in case they ever needed to move troops quickly between the cities. Yes, the purpose is for something adverse to Calwin's sensibilities. Why would they need to move troops? Probably not so worried about a crusade as they are about Calwin uprising. But at the same time, they've got a nice road now. It reminds me of that one, what have the Romans ever done for us scene from Monty Python. I also want to note that Katz just has such a resigned acceptance of language learning. But the more she sees about the sword playing her deficiencies in it, the more she dedicates herself to practicing more and more, spending all of her time trying to handle the sword. And I wish my students were more like that sometimes, but not with the sword. Though I know you said the term sword play interests you here. It does. And before I, I talk about that, I do want to just, you mentioned the roads. That is important Again, the Precy are Romans. The Romans built incredible roads, massive feats of engineering that in large part are still around today. The roads were built for military purposes. They were built so that you could get legions from one city to another, from Rome to the frontiers quickly, efficiently, cheaply, and they became massive centers, arteries of trade and migration and what have you. It's the same thing here, and so that that's a, that's just a fun detail. It's the pre, the Precier Roman cats uh, on the sort sword. Of road building does seem somewhat universal. I have here in front of me the obvious Google search: Why did Eisenhower build the interstate? Yeah, war. Oh, sure. The turns out roads are incredibly useful. It's the building roads in a an occupied territory that is very Roman. But so yeah, I looked up why did Eisenhower build the highways. But yes, the the swordsmanship. Black goes on this mini rant about swordsmanship as the sport, and I'm going to teach you to kill. 
it's it's very dramatic it's very cliche and cat calls him on it but the distinction is important and it's obvious later in the story i'm i'm called to mind of the the various times where cat's in a fight and she does the the verbs in her fighting are things like slapping a blade aside or these very blunt aggressive efficient movements aimed to end a fight quickly she's not particularly flashy or flourishy once she's at the height of her power her sword fighting you know there's in any kind of fiction like this it's all about footwork and all these things cat's got a leg that doesn't really work for much of the story and i get the feeling that her fighting is standing in one place hunched over a little bit glaring at people around her slapping swords aside with a stick and stabbing someone or blasting them with night or cold or whatever her, she's casual and brutal in her fighting in a way that is very much not swordsmanship she wins fights black taught her these things and it, it's very cool to see him in a dramatic and cliche fashion as i mentioned saying this outright at the beginning of her lessons in combat and then we can without it being called out without her ever saying just like black taught me i went for the kill unless that happens very early on and i'm just not remembering it it's it's a storytelling that harkens back to this moment dozens hundreds of times throughout the the rest of the work and i just think that's very well done very very fun to see absolutely fantastic and we see the sort of discipline being instilled this i'm going to teach you to kill efficiently and effectively none of the flourish none of the sportsman like absurdities but then we will see he also has her trained in the legions trained as part of a legion and up until the very last not only does she rely on that i am trained to kill but i am trained to be part of this greater organism this body of soldiers this legion when she ends up leading the charge on the walls of Keter on foot as part of her troops. Everything being introduced here, every seed sown, comes to not mere fruition, but flourish in the end. The lack of flourish comes to flourish. The number of times where Kat is Black's apprentice, daughter, trainee, whatever you want to call it, it's just clearly on screen in the text is just great i i really do appreciate that we obviously we know cat so much more than we know black simply by nature of which one is the protagonist of our story but every glimpse you get of black you can tie to if not a similar trait in cat then at least a trait informed by something that cat that black has done and that's just i I just got to say, that's just good writing. A couple more rapid fires, just like my last ones, which took a minute each. Looking at Captain, Kat notes that gods, even her hands are huge. She must have ogre blood or something. No. that Does Kat have any concept of what an ogre is at this point? She will. She gets up close and personal with one, but... Personal might be calling it a bit strong. They, they kept a distance. But yeah, I, I think for her, ogre is just, you know, those big things that the Precy have. I, I don't know that there's much more to it than that. For, and they for are Kat. one of the most underexplored races in the series. And I won't call that a deficiency, but a tragedy. I like the little bits we see. When Captain and Black move to fight, Captain suggests they leave names out of it because it would defeat the point all out. 
But then Lieutenant Abase says, would also wreck most of the countryside. And I'm, I recognize these are two of the great powers of the age, and they are mighty people, but it's not like Wakase says here. The, the full power of Black and Captain are terrifying and catastrophic and relatively mundane in their magical implementation. Black's got a fancy shadow and a couple of tricks. Captain's a big puppy, but <laughs> I don't believe that they would leave the entire countryside a smoking crater. Like, I don't know, the Sovereign of the Red Skies, the Witch of the Woods, Tyrant probably. Sure, he's got something. No, but I think it is the number of times we see Captain go all out, pretty limited. And the main time where we see her be pushed to her absolute limit, she's in a little domain, like a, a almost a demiplane kind of situation. So we don't know what her collateral damage truly looks like. And I can imagine Black is very quick, even in armor. And I can imagine one Wait, of in his... plate mail? In plate mail. He's very fast for somebody in plate mail. I can imagine a situation where this hyperbole, obviously, meaning Black uses his agility to get by large boulders and hills and trees and buildings, and Captain just destroys them rather than going around them. I can see that playing out. Still not going to wreck the countryside, just drop a few structures. <laughs> okay, I, fair point, I suppose. <laughs> All I'm saying is that Blackguard seems to maybe have an inflated opinion of the Black they guard. Very possibly, you're right. Also, this is our first instance of seeing the Blackguard talking, which does demystify them somewhat, which is also part of this entire story. Catherine learns more and more what the real ineffable and mysterious ways of the world are and which elements are just for show. Oh, yeah, we start off... And oddly, the gods are never part of that first category. Somehow. We start off with someone like the Sovereign of the wet Red Skies, this incredibly powerful warlock from the di- in the distance and one of the Calamities. And by the end of the story, not the end, by the time he's nearing his end, he's, I don't know, the annoying guy who keeps making threats and Kat's a little fed up with him. Also a loving, if not entirely successful father, who's mm-hmm. just doing his best. He is a real sweetie. I love him. Same. The talking about Black and Captain's fight, <laughs> wrecking the countryside, maybe. And Cat is astounded by how fast they are, how strong they are, and asks if they're not using their names. And the lieutenant clarifies they're not using them actively. Lord Black's shadow isn't moving, and Captain is, well, still using her hammer. I adore the fact that that's that going all out means she's getting powerful enough that this massive hammer that she swings easily is no longer worth carrying around at her at the height of her power and that's the cutoff for going all out captain is terrifying is what i'm saying and yet a real sweetie it's weird how that works out everyone in this book is a sweetie except for the most beloved hero of the age (laughs) i mean you're not wrong Uh, Not to drive home an overly driven point home into a dead horse, but there's this line. uh, When Captain was at her quickest, I could still make out a blur. But with Black, it was like he just appeared in another place. Catherine is just not used to seeing a man move in armor. I guarantee you that Black's (laughs) moving at like 15 miles per hour tops. Really speedy, sure. It's just a plate mail confuses her. It's like stripes on the zebra. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think I think that might be what it is. She's she's Callowin and a poor Callowin. She's people wear leather armor, right? You know, boiled leather armor. And this guy shows up in metal and can move. He's not frozen in place like a statue. She's just she's just confused. That's why the suits of armor and her name vision were empty and immobile. Nobody that's, could possibly wear that. That's it. It was it was not those weren't supposed to just be empty support for her twin they were actively part of the challenge she had to maybe fight armor and she has no idea what to do with that in that situation i think we've really cracked the code here i would apologize to ee but you know eventually someone had to see through him understand exactly what he meant it it takes a keen eye to really dig into all the nuance of this story and fortunately we have i was about to say four of those but probably two of those between the two of us I can order new glasses anytime i want of course you can i do want to save most of this for next chapter where it's going to become much more relevant but despite her complaints i'm really impressed with Catherine's language learning she sees the fight end uh black pricks captain's skin steps back and sheaths his sword with a flourish quote as captain cursed in Tagrebi, i recognized the plural of goats somewhere in there and to be honest i was kind of glad i had no idea what the rest of it meant this is exactly what i like to see when i'm teaching my kids languages i for someone who's very new to a language to pick out words in the middle of a phrase especially in a real life environment is such a difficult thing for so many monolinguals who grow up in a monolingual world it, it's very easy to turn off in the face of language. And I think in this, we're seeing learn function a bit, sure, even though she's not learning yet. But to see the plural of goats in the middle of it, one exercise I would do with my class in about a week into learning, a couple hours, was play an interview with this volleyball player. And she'd talk about uh, where she was from and what she did when she wasn't doing the Olympics and whether she preferred, uh, I think, Facebook or Instagram, Facebook or our dearly departed Twitter. I'm sorry, dearly departed Facebook or dearly departed. They're all dying these days, thank God. Uh, and the entire exercise is see if you can pick out a single word. If you get any words here, look at the success you're already having. It's a really encouraging thing. There are a lot of cognates like volleyball is volleyball. Uh, Facebook is Facebook, you know. But right away, Kat's picking that out. Next chapter, you'll see her actually attempting to use language in the real world. And this is how you actually learn language. If you're doing that, you're on the right track. She is a hero and an icon. And I'm sure that's what everyone gets most excited about by the story. Oh, there's really nothing else exciting going on, so probably. Oh, there will be a little excitement. Uh, we see that the score is currently 200 for Black and 21 for Captain, but that Black hasn't beat Ranger yet. <gasps> but yeah, in the entirety of the story, Ranger gets beat two times in the City of Gates mm -hmm. and in a throwaway line in the epilogue. Yep. It's a very, well, she gets beat two times, but forced to retreat another couple of times. So, uh, but yes, saying that in order to gloat, you have to beat Ranger is an unbelievably high bar to set. And I love it. It's, it's very much only met by 40% <laughs> of the woe. Right. It's it's very much a, it's got the energy of the, oh, you like music? Name every musician ever energy. Like, oh, you, you think you're good at fighting because you beat me? Beat the best fighter in the world then. And yet, Catherine has no sense of scale. 
as discussed in destroying the countryside, no one seems to acknowledge what scale really is in this world yet. But I just have to note, at the end, I let out the breath I hadn't known I'd been holding as the two of them continued to bicker. So that was what it looked like when legends fought. And not even a serious fight, I reminded myself. Meanwhile, Warlock alone, before he takes his title, Red Skies. These are great, powerful people, but Catherine hasn't faced down one apocalypse yet, and it really shows. She really is a novice at facing down world-ending threats, it's true. But she will get training. So I've mentioned this a few times now, and I'm going to continue pointing it out because this is really fun for me and might provide interesting context for other people. The Prey are Roman, and one more example of this is just in as simple as the equipment that the Legionaries use. They've got this large, heavy shield that weighs 20 pounds and covers the, your entire body, knee to neck. That's a very Roman-style shield, these great shields. Not, It's not the most common style of shield, these big rectangular things, but it's extremely Roman. And she's wielding a short sword for stabbing. There's the three-line thing, which, eh, sure, um, but they sort of form a shield wall, very common. Even down to the description of how the sword is drawn from its sheath, the way that it is grabbed and pushed forward, the Romans had this weird style of drawing a sword. You know, you got the, everybody's got the image in their head of the big dramatic, you grab your sword on your left side and pull it out in a big arc. The Romans had these short swords and they had a, a looser, the way it was attached to the belt was looser in such a way that you would grab it and push it forward and it would sort of slide out of the scabbard so that it could be done on the off side without bumping into the shield, without the she this massive shield getting in the way of you know your sword coming out. It's just a fun little detail that that kind of thing makes its way into the story. These these little small factors that are you know centuries of advancement in military thinking led to this is how this is done. This is how this is done, and it's cool to see that show up in the Precy and. Sure, directly copied from or inspired by real world history, but it adds a sense of depth to the world in a way that I really appreciate. I am enlightened. Rome was post-enlightenment society, right? Approximately. And I would say that that is approximately all the time we have for today. And I would say that's a stretch. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata as we discuss... Old Friends. First Impressions. And exploding pavilions. Explosion sound effect. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Cartoon Intro by Musa Production. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make all this possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 8, Introduction. What have the Praesi done for us? The orphanage? What? The lore house for tragically orphaned girls. Oh, yeah, yeah. They did give us that. Uh, th- that's true, yeah. Oh, and the stability. <laughs> Remember what the countryside used to be like? Yeah, all right. I'll grant you the orphanage and the stability are two things that the Praesi have done. but And the Imperial Highway. Well, yeah, obviously the Imperial Highway. I mean, the Imperial Highway goes without saying, doesn't it? But apart from the stability, the orphanage, and the Imperial Highway, what- Trade routes- Goblin Steel, education. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the Orc Liquor. That's something we'd really miss if the Pracy left. And trustworthy guards. It's safe to walk in the streets at night now. Let's face it, they're the only ones who could keep order in a place like this. All right, but apart from the stability, the trade routes, education, liquor, public order, Goblin Steel, Imperial Highway, the orphanage, and martial law that we all like for some reason, what have the Pracy ever done for us? Brought peace. Ah, peace? Shut up!